Isaiah 8, 19 through 9, 7. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living, to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot on the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. On of the incense increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Last Sunday, we lit the candle of hope, remembering the hope which comes in Christ, and we lit the candle of peace, remembering God's dream of a peaceful world. Today, we lit the third candle of Advent, the candle of joy. In Advent, we are in a time of waiting, like the Israelites who wandered through the wilderness, waiting to come into the promised land. We wait for the coming of joy of ages. May our hearts be forever filled with his joy of his coming. Those are my two eldest daughters, uh, Isabella's 11 and Sienna's 9. Kind of weird to see them all grow up uh, in this church. You know, like um, I've been part of this church like 17 years now, going on 17. So obviously before I had children and just to see them kind of move through is really bizarre. Um, but it's been really neat to see the Grapple Kids be a part of this Advent service and uh, just for the past couple of months. Um, as I told you, Isabella's 11, and um, so going through this pre-adolescent stage, so I've been going to counseling about this. Um, you know, counseling, um, it used to have a pretty bad stigma, you know, like a couple decades ago, if you told someone you were going to counseling, they're like, oh, really? Like, what's going on? Like, what's... But it, it's really normal nowadays, right? Like, who do you meet who doesn't go? And if they don't go, it's more of like, you don't go? Like, what's, like, do you think you're too good? Like, what's... So it's like kind of reversed, right? Like, it's reversed. Um, and I've actually been going to a counselor regularly for the, the last eight years. So um, it, it, it hasn't been because of my 
pre-adolescent daughter, though, because um, she wasn't pre-adolescent eight years ago. I, I go to counseling because of you. Like, that's why I go to counseling. Because it's, I, just, I, I go because of all of you. Actually, it's not of you, it's, it's for you. I go for you. Um, reason being is I, I, I want to be the best counselor possible I can to serve our church, and there's a lot of stuff that just goes on here, so I, I can use the coaching and I can use the feedback as to how to best serve the people in our church, and, and we're all in need of counsel, aren't we? We're all in need of encouragement and help and, and wisdom. We all need those sorts of things, and so we just have a lot of things going on around us and a lot of stressful things. Even just in your personal life, you're, you're going through like your stuff, your own personal stuff. And then if you kind of like peel the onion or take an outer ring of that onion, there's the stuff that's going on in your community, whether that's like your family stuff or your school stuff or your work stuff and all that. And then you kind of look further out some more and you just kind of look at globally the environment, the, the political environments that are going on and the wars and, and the injustices and all these sorts of things that are happening. It's just a lot of pressure and a lot of stresses that are coming out. I want <clears throat> to pose a, a hypothesis in that um, I don't think all that much has changed throughout history. People have always had these stresses in their life where, where counseling could be beneficial to them. And since the beginning of humankind, we've experienced this darkness where a wonderful counselor would be much welcomed. And here we read of the prophet Isaiah who wrote these words 800 years before the birth of Christ, before any sort of uh, media inputs, before any like fake news stuff. Like Isaiah wrote uh, about war and distress and darkness from outside and he also wrote about this war and distress and this darkness that was that was within now before we jump into Isaiah 9 I, I wanted to give us some context I wanted to give us some background um, to this to this book and what precedes chapter 9 so I want us to first take a look at chapter 2 and let's look at verse 7 in chapter 2 and keep in mind this is 3,000 years ago so We'll, we'll be able to see in terms of how much people have changed in terms of that darkness in their heart and in the world versus it, it hasn't changed all that much. So keep that in mind. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 7 speaks of materialism. And I know that uh, our world doesn't struggle with that at all. I know, I know, I'm just saying that's what Isaiah is writing about. So let's just, just humor me. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasure. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their Teslas, I mean chariots, you know. <clears throat> their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Any similarities between that and just our Bay Area and what? where we pride ourselves about in terms of innovation and, and what we create and what we do. Now jump over one chapter, Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 6. And it, it, it's giving us a picture of how gloomy things, how dark things were back then. It reads, For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. So 
do you get this picture here? Do you get this gloomy picture of, of what Isaiah is writing about here? They, they have no leader to pull them out of this gloom, out of this darkness. And the only qualification that one needed to have was, you have nicer clothes than I do. So you're going to be the leader because your jacket's just nicer than my jacket. We're all in rags and you have, so you be the leader. So there's, there's nothing in regards here to integrity or character, love of people, how to address injustice. There's none of that stuff. It's just simply because you have a nicer jacket. And so I, I bring that to the present and, I, and, I, and it's reminding me of how do we choose our leaders today? Whether that's a political leader or whatever type of leader we have, it's, it's just you look more the part than this other person, therefore you do it. And we're not looking at character. We're not looking at integrity. We're not looking at how they love people. It's just you have the nicer jacket, so you do it. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. So Isaiah is writing about these really, really great cities that, that, that had uh, the, these glory years, and then what they turned into into this desolate, inhabited, uninhabited place. And, and we see this in our nation, don't we? We see these places, these cities that were exploited for their resources, whether they're people or natural resources, and they offer something for a time, and then the city is just completely discarded and left to waste. And the people stuck in them are those who aren't upwardly mobile to move on, and they're stuck in this kind of desolate place. If this doesn't kind of ring true for you, I want to invite you to go visit Detroit. I was just there a few months ago. I was there for a community development conference in the glory days of the American automotive industry. That was a booming place. That place had so much resource and so much was going on. And you go there today and, and you read this verse, many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. It's there. And so here we have eight centuries before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah writing about all of these things. And then he writes about sexual immorality. He writes about substance abuse. He writes about this party lifestyle. Look at Isaiah chapter 3, verse 16, regarding sexual immorality. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. And then regards to substance abuse and this party kind of lifestyle, Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. So we have this picture of how dark times were 3,000 years ago when Isaiah wrote this and I just don't think all that much has changed. And when I hear people talk about how, you know, the Bible's antiquated, how, how can you believe such a thing? Christianity is just so outdated. Like, why, how can you believe that? How can you read that same book? How can you believe any of this stuff? 
I just don't think we're reading the same book. I, I don't think we're both recognizing that the things that we're dealing today aren't all that different from the things that Isaiah dealt with 3,000 years ago. Let me point out one more thing, one more thing that people think that we've kind of evolved out of, but we actually haven't. And that one thing is superstition. And you'd think that being people of modernity, that we wouldn't have these superstitious type of things, but, but we do. We have a ton of them. You, you'd, you'd think that uh, no one's going to believe in that sort of stuff anymore, but then you just flip open the newspaper and what's been there for the last like uh, almost 100 years, I think it is, is the horoscopes. Like they're still there. I have this relative that just thinks that the Bible is foolishness, that Christianity is foolishness, but the, the ironic thing, the funny thing is she religiously follows the horoscope. And she'll tell me, like, oh, so today uh, I'm not supposed to whatever uh, cross the street. I don't know what it is. But. And, you, and so just for fun, I pulled up my app on Yelp uh, on my phone, and I pulled up Yelp, and I just put psychics in there in current location. I just popped it up just to see, like, what would pop up. Guess how many pages came up? 30. 30. 30 pages. Oh, you just looked it up yourself? Yeah. I'm the first one on that list. So, like. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6, it reads, They are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. We're further along today than we are before. I think, yes, technologically and scientifically, absolutely. Yes, we are. But if, you're, if we're looking at things spiritually, if we're looking at things morally, if we're looking at things ethically, I don't think so. Not at all. Where Isabella started reading, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And so that's the context from Isaiah 2 to 8 for chapter 9. And I just don't think all that much has changed, that the world is still a really dark place. 3,000 years after Isaiah wrote this, we're still in need of a wonderful counselor. We're still in need of light to pierce this darkness. But people then... They didn't follow that light, much like people today. We're not desiring to follow that light. Isaiah continues with his writing, chapter 8, verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. That's what he's directing people back to. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no light. And there won't be a light without the testimony and the teaching of God. The, the, the very first psalm, the psalm that kicks off the entire book of, of psalms, it reads this, Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Has there been a dawn? Has there been a light in your heart from God? When, when life is without God, it's pretty dark. And, and you and I, we all have experienced this when we've kind of stepped into darkness. Like, 
choosing to go that way, knowing that we have a better way to do things, a better way to handle things, and we still walk towards darkness. I struggle with this myself. I, I deal with this all the time. There's this internal struggle within of this light and this darkness. And this is what we have before Isaiah chapter 9, verse 21, chapter 8. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry... They will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. This is so us. Why, God? Why do you do this? Why is this not working out? Why is this relationship not working out? Why is all this injustice in the world? Why all this? Why, why, why? But here's verse 22. And they will look to the earth. Where you're just, I've had enough. I don't believe it anymore. I don't have the faith anymore. I don't trust you anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. And then you're just looking towards the earth and try to figure it out on your own. But behold, what's down here? Distress. Darkness. The gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. It only gets darker. And so we have this really, really sad picture of this really oppressed life. It's what... It's what people are experiencing today. Even those that used to walk with God and they looked up and were like, hey God, and then something happened and then now they're mad with God and instead of continuing looking upward, they look down and they look at the earth and they look at the distresses and the sorrows and they think that they can fix it, but it's only the light that can bring them out of the darkness. See, when, when you're in the darkness, you don't know until you experience light. And so oftentimes that's us, you know, you, you get caught up in something and then it's not until like light's shown into it that you're just like, oh man. You know, last week um, I was dealing with the situation here at the church as Pastor Steve was, was speaking and I, I didn't have good control of my tongue. I said things that I, I shouldn't have said or didn't and, and it wasn't until afterwards that I caught myself and I'm like, man, I went down a, a dark path. I didn't have to do the things or say the things that I said. I didn't have to treat someone the way that I treated them. And there's always this battle. But you need light to be shined down on that thing. And as long as we have a rebellious heart and, and a contempt toward God, there isn't a chance to repent. There isn't a chance to change from being in that darkness to move into light. It's impossible. And so rather than looking to God, a lot of people are continuing to look down to earthly things. And as long as they look to the earth, there will be distress, there will be darkness, there will be gloom. And it's in these gloomy circumstances that Isaiah is pointing towards hope. He's pointing towards light, toward, towards a new dawn where all these things are possible. Like, stop looking down there, look up. You looked up before. And God brings light to those dark places, and he's always done that. Look back to the book of Genesis. You know, Adam and Eve are the ones that are separating themselves from God, and then they go off and they hide from God, and who is it that goes and looks for them instead of them saying, God, you know, sorry, I won't. It's God. God's the one that goes out. And it's the same thing in the story of Advent, where it wasn't us crying out to God. It was him saying, I'm sending my son. We're going to go after them. We're going to bring light to them, where God brings that light into darkness and why we celebrate Advent. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom, no gloom for her who 
was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture. I hope I do it justice. In the former time, in the past, there was this experience of a really bad, oppressive time, when a time when God's people were humbled by the Assyrians, and that's the reference to Zebulun and to Naphtali, the, the Assyrians. So God's people resettled in these camps, and it was extremely oppressive. There was a, a thick darkness that was there. Their way of life was destroyed. It was stripped away from them, and all they had was this gloom, and they were looking for God. They were looking for light to break through. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They were enslaved in bondage in Assyria, and they saw this great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light shone. And so Isaiah is pointing them to a future. He's pointing them to this bright future, and he's directing them to this great light, this great hope. And what is that? We have to look to Matthew chapter 4 to find that out. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Now when he had heard John, he being Jesus, John being his cousin, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory Zebulun and Naphtali. You seeing the connection back to Isaiah? The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, change, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The light entered. The light entered that very place that Isaiah wrote about 3,000 years ago, 800 years before this time of Jesus. So what was Jesus doing in Zebulun, Naphtali, that great place of darkness that the Assyrians once oppressed God's people in Isaiah chapter 9? He was speaking about a future where this Christ would appear. This great light that Isaiah wrote about in verse 2. And Jesus was a fulfillment of that prophecy that we read about here in Matthew chapter 4. So how did Jesus overtake darkness with his light? How is sorrow overtaken by joy? How is war overtaken by peace? The concise answer is God. And let me explain this. If you jump down to the end of verse 7, it reads this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's God. It's his character. It's his desire. It's his will. It's his choice to do this. And then you go into verse 3 of chapter 9. It says, you, God, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So it's you, God, who has multiplied. It's you that has given the increase of joy. It is God. It is his zeal to do this. It is in his character, his desire to do this. God does it. God is the one who overcomes darkness. He's the one who turns mourning into dancing. The, he brings peace in times of war. It's God who is this source of light, who sent Jesus to be this light in this dark world. Now, I know a lot of you are, are really, really bright. You've gone to great colleges and, and you do amazing work. And I'm really humbled to be even sharing with you because so many of you are, are so much more educated than I am and smarter than I am. 
here's, here's something that I feel that is so true about the Bible in Corinthians when he says he uses the foolish things to confound the wise. I've never met a person come to faith or believe in God because they intellectualized it into being. And if you are able to do that, I so want to meet you because you'll be the smartest person in the world to have figured that out. Now, this is not to say that you don't need your mind to reason and to practice logic into believing in God and having faith. You, you have to have that. But here's something, something to think about. The light that God is speaking of doesn't come from you. It, it, it's, it's not inside of you and where you can be smart enough to think that you can flip it on or turn it off. And it's because you can't turn on or turn off what's not yours. So God does that. That is God's revelation to help you see those things. And that's why people in the light, when we're reading Isaiah, when we're reading Matthew, this makes sense to them. They can see this. And if you're not in the light, when you're reading Isaiah and you're reading Matthew, it doesn't make any sense to you at all. Even though the words on the screen are the same exact words, even though the words on your Bible or the, uh, the, the Bible that's right in front of you is the same exact words, our understanding is completely different about it. One is in the light and one is not. One is you understand what it is. And the other is you're just like, what? That's silliness. That's foolishness. What the heck is that? I think you're in the dark. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. You don't have to be stuck there. You can ask God to turn that light on for you. You can ask for him to reveal himself to you. Now, how do you know when you've moved from darkness into light? When, when God does it. When you ask him by faith for him to do that for you. And so, thus far, what has God done here? In verses 2 and 3, we see the good things that God does. And then you jump to verses 4 and 5. We read of the bad things that God has removed. And so we'll get into verses 4 and 5 later. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 first. Verses 2 and 3, we read of this great light, this great joy. Now, um, I'm going to take our plane up like 30,000 feet so we can gain a better perspective of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and I know some of you are thinking, like, there's no way he can do this because he spends like a whole hour talking about two verses. But here we are. Now, some of you might get a little woozy on this trip, so like, just, just prepare, just kind of go with me here. Genesis. Genesis, we have the hero of our faith. Not just our faith, but of Judaism, of Islam. This is Abraham. No one would argue this is a hero of the faith. But here's an interesting fact about Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. He came from the Chaldeans. right? So God called this pagan to be uh, the, the leader of God's people who he would fulfill his promises through. And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17 and 18, verses 17 and 18, God said this to Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That was God's promise 
to Abraham. And God never breaks his promises. That is something for us to keep in mind. It's really important as we read the rest of the Bible. We need to keep that promise in mind. Because when you get to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, this is still in play. There's a not yet aspect, but it's still in play through all all of this. You turn to the end of the Bible, Revelation. Look at chapter 7 and verse 9. This is about God's fulfilled promise that is still yet to happen, but it appears to John in a dream, so he records this on the island of Patmos as he's writing the book of Revelation, and he writes this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Can you imagine this? So what's the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation about? Remember, we're looking at this from up top, and we're seeing all this down. It's about God's grace. This is all about God's grace who came to us, the light shone into this darkness, and who sends his son Jesus, this light into this darkness, who invites us into this forever family, and it's made up of people of all nations, all languages, all tribes. It's a number that is greater than the sands of the earth. It is greater than the stars in the sky. And he's going to keep that promise. And so when we look out and we look at all the racial tensions and we look at all the discrimination and all the things that divide, we have to look at it in terms of the lens of what God has said. All nations, all peoples, all languages are in this plateau of grace. All these people. And through Jesus, the light that comes into this darkness this advent of waiting. We're waiting for Christ's return. We are celebrating his birth, but we're waiting for his return. And yet, most of the secularized world isn't interested in Jesus this time of year. I think more of them are interested in gift exchanges, um, parties, like holiday parties, and um, like SantaCon. Have you guys been to SantaCon? It's, um, it's incredible, actually. It's just, I, I never knew it even existed until I got caught in the middle of it. And then I regretted it so badly. Because uh, I was in the city that day, and I thought it was bad when Obama visited, because it took me an hour and a half to get through the city when Obama visited the city. This was an hour and a half, but I was surrounded by Santas. Like... <laughs> Different Santas, like scantily clad Santas and like um, some of them like less than scantily clad. It was just like really disgusting. And it's just like all, every kind of Santa you can think about, like um, just dressed in all sorts of ways. It's like thousands of them, like all over. So you can't really just drive through. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to counseling for that too. Um, <laughs> But Jesus, during Christmas, like, forget about it. It's, uh, you, you see a lot more Santas than you would nativity scenes. Like, a ton more. You see a lot more reindeers with red noses. You see a lot more, like, bells. Like, all this other stuff. But in the scope of world history, all of this fits into Genesis, Revelation, and God's promise to Abraham until its fulfillment. Even what's happening today. That God is the one who multiplied the nations and increased in joy this numerous amount of people of all nations, peoples, languages, more than the grains of sand 
that we can count. And so verses 3 and through 5 are this, it's this picture of joy in harvest. It's this joy in, in plunder as a result of God's intervention. And that's his promise. It's this promise of light, this promise of joy. And so while we experience death, fear, injustice, war, sorrow, there's a light. And it's not a light that you and I can just flip on and off when we want to. It's part of the divine plan. It is a divine light that shines whether or not you or I like it. By nature, we're in darkness. And none of us can oust that darkness from within. That, that's impossible. God needs to shine light in the darkness. And, and verses 4 and 5 are where Isaiah wrote about these bad things being removed. That God brings us light, peace, liberation. And he also removes darkness from us. Verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So that day of Midian, that should kind of ring a bell for some of you who know the Bible. And if you don't, it's a great story that uh, I encourage you to read. It's found in Judges chapter 6. It's a story about Gideon. Gideon is this uh, awesome story about how... God, when he's with you, you will have the victory even though you have every odd against you. That you'll come through. Like, all of us love underdog stories, right? Like, Gideon is an ultimate, like, Rudy. Like, you know, he's like... And so, Rudy... Uh, Rudy. Like Rudy. Rudy. Um, Gideon. Gideon was called a mighty warrior, and it's so silly because he's not. He's like, so not. It's like uh, calling me buff or something. Like, this is just not, right? So he's not, but God calls him that. God sees him as that. And, and, and he's actually the least in his family. No one would choose this guy to lead an army. And so he has this army of 32,000 people. And some of you may think, like, oh, that's a big army. It's not a big army when the other army is hundreds of thousands. So the Midianites have hundreds of thousands of troops. And Gideon has 32. There's no way these guys are going to win. There's no way. And then God says, um, I want you to take out 32,700 of them. Or 31,700 of them. I only want you to have 300. And Gideon's like, huh? Like you, if anything, you need to add. You can't subtract. But God's like, this is, this is how I do stuff. And so this oppressed and this burdened people, are, they're set free from God. It is miraculous. It's this intervention that brings them great joy. It brings them gladness where God lifted that yoke of burden. Where no one can say like, oh no, it was your army. You guys are so skilled. You're so, you know, you're looking to the earth and the darkness and stuff. And you guys pulled up your bootstraps and you guys came through and you guys won. You're just better skilled. You have better technology. You have better stuff. You can overcome these things. No, God's making sure. No, 32, 300. This is all me. There's no, there's no doubt about this. This is me. I'm the one that does this. I'm the one that lifted that staff from your shoulder. I'm the one that pulls that rod out of the oppressor's hands. I'm the one that sets you free. Same thing's happening here with Jesus. Jesus is like, I'm the one that's going to set them free. 
And everything points to Jesus. Every forefather of the faith that we can think of. When we look at Moses freeing the people from the Egyptians, he's dealing with that tyrant Pharaoh, and he's dealing with how they're being beaten because they're, they're like uh, not building things fast enough and all those burdens of taking the straw away from the bricks, and, and he sets his people free. And Moses is not qualified, just like Gideon. He can't talk very well. He's like me. Like, he can't talk very well. And once again, one final time, God set his people free with Jesus in this whole story. And there's, there's no more oppressive living under tyrants that God released them from their burdens. He took their beatings. He rid them of tyrants. And, and Jesus made the, the burdens his own. He took the beatings. He took the death to free us from an eternal darkness. So yes, people still live with physical burdens and emotional oppression and the dark things of our world, the injustice of our world that totally weighs us down. Here's the challenge. Are you going to look at life even though it's so dark towards the earthly things? towards the sorrow and towards the distress, which just leads and spirals down to a thicker darkness, are we going to look up? Are we going to look up to receive light? And the Bible, Isaiah doesn't say anything about them like arguing back and forth with God and stuff like that. They just chose to like, I just don't want to do it anymore. I don't believe it anymore. I'm going to go this way. When God is saying like, I, you're walking away from me. And so... I love you, and I'm going to pursue you. And so Jesus shows up 800 years later when they're doing this. They're walking away from God. They're looking towards the earth. Here's um, something I'd, I'd like us to think about. Genesis, a lot of people think that Genesis is kind of like the first thing. Like uh, it's... I'd like to pose a thought that Genesis is the beginning of creation of us, of earth, of our world, but there was something that was happening before that. There, was, there were spiritual beings, angelic beings, uh, demonic beings before that. Now, if you follow along that thought and believe that with me, when God created in Genesis... He created in a complete war zone because Lucifer and Satan and his demons have already decided to not worship God and to, he wanted to be worshipped himself. There was a group of them that went with Satan and there was already this fight. There was already this war zone. And out of that, here we are. So we were brought into this darkness and so how is this darkness going to be overcome by light? It is only done because of the zeal of the Lord. That he wants to do it. He wants to redeem it all. And his plan is, Jesus, my son, God incarnate, is going to enter into that darkness. And he's going to redeem it. And he's going to shine light in it. And he's going to save all of it. And I'm going to make a promise to Abraham that this is going to happen. It's not yet happened, but it's going to happen in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, that all these peoples, all these different languages, all these different nations 
I'm going to save all of them who believe in me, who believe that I'm the light of the world that casts out all the darkness. I'll do it for them. Let me just close with reading verses 6 and 7, and um, we'll, we'll continue with worship. All pointing to Jesus here. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. God, your promise is still holding true and we haven't experienced it fully yet, but we do know Lord, that there is a tremendously long track record of you keeping your promises and doing what you said you would do. Over 300 uh, messianic prophecies fulfilled in your word. And so if we want to intellectualize these things, we do have that sort of data. But we do also realize, God, that in regards to faith, that how arrogant of us to think that we can just flip it on and off within us. And so I ask God that um, anyone who does not have a relationship with you would just for a second humble themselves long enough and ask you to turn that light on for them and that you will. I pray, God, for any hardened hearts, for any closed minds, that they would just give you a chance because you love them so much that you want to pull them out of the darkness. You want to pull them out of looking at earthly things that are gloomy and spiraling them into a thicker darkness and you want them to see you. And even though we don't get to experience today the great things you have planned, say like in Revelation 7, 9, that that promise is still under that whole picture where it's bookended from your promise to Abraham in Genesis 22 to that last time where you would gather all your peoples of all nations of all language together. So Lord, um, during this Advent season as we are, are waiting for you and we desire for you to come back, we do realize, God, that it's your zeal that is so patient that you are wanting to bring more of those pebbles of sand, of those stars in the sky that you see each one so valuable that you're willing to have us endure this darkness to bring those souls together with us. In Jesus' name, amen.